Walking along this path, well-trodden, cleared by an Eagle Scout, I pause and I gaze into the cool, dark green wood and sense a clearing, a spring-fed pond, dragonflies just beyond sight. But I think they are there, and I am here, yearning to step off this path. Others have said, others have told me that beautiful worlds, that adventure, that life lies off that trail. All it takes, all that is required, a will to break free, to ignore the signs holding my feet to the line, but what about the risks? Deer ticks, Lyme disease, poison ivy snakes? <laughs> what about losing my way beyond the reach of others who stick to the path? Where would I go? Who will lead me into and out of the wilderness? But I think they are there. And I am here, yearning to step off this path. I wrote these words, this poem, about six or seven years ago on the back of a napkin. I don't really remember what was going on in my mind at the time. But it was one of those times when it's sort of like in a breath, all of a sudden these words just showed up in pretty much in the order that I just read them. I share them with you this morning because they still resonate with me. They still challenge me. These words remind me that I, perhaps too often, am awaiting permission or for a guide or for something, something to happen, to make it okay to step off that path, to take the risk and find the life I dream of. As some of you know, I served an organization called Children and Family Urban Ministries in Des Moines, Iowa for about a year. It was actually the year before I came here. And one of the programs, amongst the many programs we did, six nights a week, we would serve an evening meal to the folks in the neighborhood. Six nights a week, anywhere from 40 to 100 people would come in of all ages, they'd line up and they'd get a good hot meal in an atmosphere of dignity and respect. Some of the folks were homeless. Most all of them were struggling in one way or another, living in economic conditions that I and perhaps many of you would probably find untenable. There were plenty of families, too. Their kids attended our after-school programs. And so parents coming off their jobs would come to the church to have a meal with their kids because a lot of cases they were going on to a second, sometimes even a third job, just to try and keep it together. So this was like a moment where they could actually have a family meal together. There were no eligibility requirements to eat. Come in the door, grab a tray, get served. 
No one asked your immigration status. No one is asked to prove their need. No one was asked to defend their suffering. On the days that I worked, I would kind of help supervise the meal. I would greet people as they came in. I would help the kids get some real food on their plates, not just the chocolate cake at the end. I would help clean up when something got spilled. What I would not do was eat. Now, the organization had no rules against my, me eating, and in fact, on more than one occasion, members of the staff would invite me to eat, but I always declined. Here was my thinking. These folks, these folks coming here were struggling. For some of them, this would be the only hot and nutritious meal that they would receive that day. For others, it may be the only chance they get to eat a meal with their kids. And for still others, it was a chance to have one safe place in their world, just a safe place to be for a while. But you see, I had all that. Each evening when I left, I would go home and I would have a meal with my family. I had a rich social life, people I connected with almost every day. I was not struggling, or at least the struggles that I had seemed really small in comparison to those lining up to have supper in the basement of the neighborhood church. So I thought, you know, if I took a plate of food, I would be taking food away from people who had few other options. Better to have leftovers for them to take home than to feed myself when I knew I had a fridge full of food just a couple miles away. And yet, and yet, I really wanted to get to know these people. I would watch them. I would eavesdrop on their conversations. And I made a lot of assumptions about them, but I couldn't ever confirm them. That desire to get to know them was really, quite frankly, obviously easy to fix, right? Get a plate of food, sit down, and join the conversation. But I didn't. I couldn't. Because, you know, that voice in my head kept telling me this, this story. The story that says, because of my privilege, I had no right to take even a little from those who had so little to begin with. I was, I told myself, the expert in the situation. I had convinced myself that there was only one way for me to be in that room, one moral way for me to be in that room. And so I didn't share a meal. And because I didn't share a meal, I would always be separate. One of the people that was helping, sure, but no one there would ever get to know me, and I would not ever get to know them. So there was this community, but despite my best intentions, I could never be a part of it, for I had already separated myself from any real relationship. You know, it's such a simple thing, sharing a meal. We all eat. We all have to, right? It's one of the great equalizers. Sharing a meal together can break down the barriers and erase all borders. And I believe that with my heart. I really do. 
But my expert mind, my expert mind convinced me otherwise, and so I stood there evening after evening surveying the room with one simple question running through my head. Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right is what I might call an unanswerable question. Let me explain. There's an idea that we all carry with us an unanswerable question. A question that keeps getting asked in different ways, in different times, but somehow ends up guiding our lives unconsciously, for the most part, powerfully nonetheless. You know, some folks' unanswerable question might sound like, am I loved? Or am I beautiful? Or am I good enough? Mine, that I've carried all my life, is, am I doing this right? So the problem, okay, well, there's several problems with this whole idea. But the problem, the primary problem with an unanswerable question is that, that they are unanswerable. These questions, they're given to us by our family, our friends, our culture. We internalize them. And the question begins to inform our everyday living. And while our culture may have given us the question, our culture cannot answer it nor can our family or our friends. Now, of course, we can ask the question out loud. We probably have lots of people when we do. When we ask the question out loud, we have lots of people in our lives who will give us the answers. Am I smart? Yes, absolutely. Am I beautiful? Oh, yes. But you know, those answers are insufficient. They're not enough. They're not good enough. We can't hear them because our internal voice, our heart, doesn't believe the answers. They don't believe the answers that come from outside of ourselves. But that doesn't mean we don't try and we're asking all the time, not always in the same words, but still, am I doing this right? Yes, Greg. Am I doing this right? Yeah, Greg. Am I doing this right? No. Oh. Am I doing it right now? Yes, you got it right this time. And no matter how many times you ask the question, the answer will never be sufficient. Because we ask outside and we never hear the answer from inside. The problem is that we are so busy asking the question over and over, whether it's out into the world or up in our heads, like me standing there in the basement of the church watching people eat. Am I saying, am I doing this right? I never get the chance. We never get the chance to hear the answer because the answer is in our hearts. And until we can hear that, perhaps we can never be in real relationship with another person. Ralph Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of our great spiritual teachers, wrote often about what is sometimes thought of or interpreted as a self-centered individualism. In his essay called Self-Reliance, many of you or some of you may have read, 
It's probably one of the most familiar and most quoted of his writings, of these writings. In that essay, in, in speaking in that male-dominant vernacular of his time, Emerson rails against conformity, right? With lines like, Whoso would be a man must be a nonconformist. And nothing is at last sacred to you but the integrity of your own mind. And my favorite, I shun father and mother and wife and brother when my genius calls to me, when my genius calls to me. Lines like that, it's easy to get into the thought that Emerson was, in our vernacular, kind of full of himself. <laughs> right? It was all ego. But here's the thing, Emerson's not talking about ego. He's talking about trusting yourself. He's talking about listening to your heart. Trust thyself, he says. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. He's inviting us. This is an invitation to listen to that vibration, that which resonates most strongly in ourselves, the voice of our own soul is the one voice we can count on to tell us the truth, to tell us who we are. He writes, this is the voice. These are the voices that we hear in solitude, but they grow faint and inaudible as we enter the world. This conformity that Emerson talks about, this conformity to the world, is just simply giving up and giving over to the world, to others, to decide for you what you should think, who you should love, and who you should be in the world. Our conformity to the world comes from everywhere except our heart. And here's where I disagree with those who interpret this essay the most as, as a call to ego-driven individualism. More so than anything else, Emerson is saying we must listen to our hearts so that we can know who we are, because if we don't know who we are, who we are in our hearts, in our bodies, in our souls, we can never be in authentic relationship with another person. So how do we do that, though? Right? It sounds good, but how do we get there? How do we do this heart listening, this soul listening? How do we come to know and even begin to trust ourselves? How do we do this above the din of our lives, all that noise and busyness of our days? The Quaker author and teacher, Parker Palmer, many of you know this part, he talks about the soul being like a wild animal, shy. And he says, you know, we can't encounter our souls, we cannot get there by crashing through the woods, stomping, shouting for your soul, hey, come here, I want to talk. It runs away, it hides. We must, he says, instead walk quietly into the woods. Sit patiently at the base of a tree. Breathe with the earth and fade into our surroundings. And only then will this 
wild creature that is our soul put in an appearance, even briefly. This coming weekend, we, you all, have the opportunity to participate in the annual Wellsprings Silent Retreat. And this is an opportunity to develop a particularly powerful practice of silence, a silence that goes on long enough that we can, in Parker's metaphor, actually catch the wild animal, the catch a glimpse of this creature that is our soul. I participated last year in the silent retreat, and I can tell you that it was a transformative experience. Now, I'm an introvert by personality, so the thought of going a whole day without talking to anyone is actually kind of nice for me. <laughs> it's not really difficult. And I know there's a lot of extroverts in this room who find the thought of that day of silence to be really intimidating. But I also know there are a lot of extroverts in this room who have gone through the silent retreat and found it as transformative as I have. So I want to tell you what happened to me last fall. Last fall, I spent most of the morning of our silence in the morning wandering around the grounds of the retreat center. It's a beautiful place, and I'd wander through the woods, and I would sit in the woods for a while, and then I would go back to the center, and I'd sit on the deck, or I would get a little chilly, and I'd go inside, and I probably didn't sit anywhere for more than maybe five or ten minutes. I was up, and I was moving. Here's the funny part. I do recall several times sitting for a while, wondering if there was something more I was supposed to be doing <laughs> to get this great spiritual insight, right? You know what that question was? <laughs> Am I doing this right? <laughs> and so I'd get up, and I'd start wandering around again, and I'd go sit in the woods again, and I'd rock the blue path this time, or the red path, and I would, just, I would go all over the place, and there was all this time, am I doing this right? And I'd sit in contemplation, waiting, and then for maybe 15 minutes, and then I was up, and I was moving around again, and I did this for hours. And all the time, while my voice was silent, my head certainly was not. The thoughts ebbed and flowed endlessly until sometime early in the afternoon. I think I must have been tired from all the walking around. <laughs> and, I, and I took a chair and I dragged it out to this meadow, um, and it's where the, the short grass of the lawn turns into the tall grass of this meadow, and I just sat there, kind of worn out from all my walking around, and, and I just decided that I was going to sit there for the rest of the time, and so I sat. And then the oddest thing happened. My mind, which was probably as exhausted as my legs, my mind had been running uninterrupted ramble of thoughts all day long, and it quieted down too. It was then I saw the grasshopper. Sitting on a broad leaf near the edge of the meadow. And then I noticed another one, kind of on the lower part of the leaf, a smaller grasshopper. And these two grasshoppers were kind of starting to move around each other in this sort of odd little dance. I was pretty sure 
that the little grasshopper was seeking some sort of romantic relationship with the larger one. And I presume that the larger one was the female because after several minutes of this flirtatious dance on that leaf, she clearly and profoundly rejected the suitor. Okay, maybe I'm projecting a little bit on that, but... I sat there watching this drama unfold, and I became aware not only of these two grasshoppers, but of dozens, all coming on the edge of that meadow. They were crawling up the stalks of grass. They were hopping from leaf to leaf, jumping on each other and over each other. This whole community of grasshoppers doing the things that grasshoppers do. And I watched them for maybe an hour, maybe more. And the longer I sat there in silence, in the stillness of both body and mind, the more I saw. It was amazing and wonderful. And then I got it. Right? I got it. The whole point of this silence to see, to really see, and to really hear. We need to, well, we need to shut up for a while. We need to be so still that even our monkey brain wears itself out and quiets down. At that moment, I got the answer I had been looking for. Am I doing this right? Yes. Yes. The answer was brief. It was fleeting. But for the first time, perhaps for the first time in my life, I heard it. I heard the answer in a real way. Am I doing this right? Yes. Emerson's invitation is to listen to our own heart, to our own soul, with beginner's mind, and to trust what we hear, what our hearts tell us is true, even when it seems inconsistent from one day to the next. And this is a, this is a problem for me. <laughs> but he writes, he writes, he wrote this for me, by the way. He writes, the terror that scares us from self-trust is our consistency. The terror, the terror that scares us from self-trust is our consistency. A reverence for our past act or word because the eyes in the eyes of others have no other data for computing our orbit than our past acts and we are loath to disappoint them. Emerson here is inviting us to take a risk, to disappoint them, to go ahead, just disappoint the others. Because without that risk, we cannot, again, we cannot be in that real mutual relationship. Because Emerson wants us to know ourselves so well, so well that we understand ourselves, that we trust our own heart, that the only way we can be in relationship is to be authentic in relationships. We know ourselves so well that the only way to be is authentic. There can be no barriers to those relationships, to an authentic relationship. No borders, 
No boundaries. What Emerson is telling me is to take the damn plate of lasagna and sit down and join the conversation and to allow myself to be moved, to be transformed by those relationships. Walking along this path, well-trodden, cleared by an Eagle Scout, you know what? You know what? Life and dragonflies lay off that path. What it takes is not someone to lead you into and out of the wilderness. We don't need an expert in all things, your expert mind. What is possible comes to us only when we listen to our heart. And when we trust what we hear, and as beginners, step off that path. This is my prayer for you today. This is my prayer for myself today. May it be so. And amen. Let us pray together. God of our heart's deepest yearning, we are, we are so grateful for this day, for this beautiful day, for this breath, this breath that we take together in this place, in this community. May we hear in this breath, in this day, may we hear our hearts. May we hear our soul. May we listen, listen for the answer to our question. It's there, waiting to be heard. Amen.